My friends, we come today to consider the man Apollos. We have in chapter 18 the close of the second mission journey. Paul's second mission journey comes to a close at verse 22. So let's uh, quickly review then what happens at the close of this second mission journey. You'll notice that it says in verse 18 that, and Paul having remained many days longer. So Acts 18 and verse 18. It appears that Paul stayed quite a, quite a time in Corinth. More than likely because uh, you'll remember that the proconsul there, Gallio, had refused to deal with Paul. The Jews had brought a complaint against Paul, and Gallio had dismissed it. Remember, he wanted nothing to do with it. He said, this is just an intramural discussion amongst yourselves about th- points of your own law. You guys deal with it, uh, but there will not be any violence. Although you know there was violence, right? Because then Sosthenes was beaten and so on. But at any rate, it appears that the Jews did not have any legal recourse against Paul. Uh, and, and, and the rioting that had happened in Thessalonica and then later in Berea, did not happen in Corinth. And so Paul stayed there, and he preached, and he labored hard in Corinth. He, again, continues the acquaintance of Priscilla and Aquila. There must have been quite a strong friendship there. Because then when we notice that when Paul leaves uh, Corinth, and again, if you can kind of just keep in your mind, uh, right, you have, you have uh, the, the, the country of Turkey, right, and then you have the Aegean Sea, between Turkey and Greece, right? And the next, and then if you keep going to the west, you have the Adriatic Sea, and then you have Italy, right? The boot, right? So uh, in the Aegean Sea there, so Paul is in Greece now, Corinth, right? Is on that little tiny land bridge between the mainland of Greece and that what's called the Peloponnesus, and that little land bridge there, the city of Corinth. And now he takes off from Corinth, he crosses the Aegean Sea, and it says in verse 19, and they came to Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was one of the, uh, again, one of the leading cities of the ancient world. Uh, Probably one of the fourth largest cities, right? Rome was always the largest city. And then you had the cities of Alexandria and Antioch were all also uh, very large cities in in those times. But Ephesus would have been right there, right behind those those big ones, where you would have had the city of Ephesus, a massive city, a huge center of... uh, uh, Greco-Roman society and all that is, is uh, connected to it. So he comes to Ephesus. But notice that uh, even as he comes to Ephesus in verse 19, he enters the synagogue, he reasons with the Jews, and the Jews even ask him, isn't that interesting how the Jews in, in uh, Ephesus are not hostile, appear, apparently. They even ask Paul to stay for a time. But Paul does not consent. What was Paul's hurry? Why does he get to Ephesus, engage in ministry amongst the Jewish people there? He goes to the synagogue, but then he basically brings it to a halt, and he says, I've got to go. I've got to run. And off he goes. Again, Luke is giving us a very bird's-eye view of this, of the end of this, and so it's hard to know. And we'd have to say that perhaps the reason was that Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem. You'll remember that in Cancria, Paul had shaved his head in keeping of a vow, Now, one of the Nazarite vows required that you would take that hair that you shaved off and bring it to Jerusalem. Again, that's very speculative. But for some reason, Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem quickly. So even though he has really uh, an open door in Ephesus, they, they, they roll out the welcome mat for him, they want him to stay longer, Paul hastens off 
And it says that in verse 22, he landed at Caesarea, and then he went up and greeted the church. That almost certainly means he went up to Jerusalem. That's what going up would mean, right? Like we, we would say, right, I, I went up to Grand Rapids, right? I went down to Kalamazoo. Well, they would go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a, up, it was a, on, a, on a hill. So he went up and greeted the church in Jerusalem, and then he went down. Now, that's odd to us because going down here would be going north, right? Because he's going up to, see, I said it myself, he's going north to Antioch. But for them, it'd be going down because Jerusalem was such a high city. You'd go down from Jerusalem to Antioch, even though you're going north. And he ends up in Antioch. And that's the end, then, of the second missionary journey. And I just want to point out to you that Aquila and Priscilla uh, leave Corinth and go with him to Ephesus. But now Aquila and Priscilla are left in Ephesus. Paul has gone on to Jerusalem. So we have Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus. And Paul has made a promise to return to Ephesus. And then that brings us to the third mission journey that Paul begins in verse 23. So in verse 23 of Acts 18, the restless spirit of Paul, again, under the the uh, pressure of the call of God, right? The call of God is such a powerful thing in the life of Paul. It burns within him. He can never sit still because God has called him to speak the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Paul can never stop. He can never sit still. And he gets up, and after having spent some time there, that would be in Antioch, he departs again. And off he goes. And my friends, these are not little... You know, trips like we might make to Schoolcraft or to Scotts or to, you know, even even Fort Wayne or something like that, right? These are long, long trips that he makes on feet. And where does he go? It says here that he departs and he passes through the Galatian region and Phrygia. Now, uh, I want to ask you, and you can't answer me, I know, but I'll ask you to answer in your own mind, what four churches are in Galatia? I think even the children can answer that, right? A, I, L, and D, right? Those are the churches that Paul visited on his first mission journey. A, I, L, and D. And, or, uh, Antioch, and that's, of course, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. It seems like Paul's heart was in those four cities. And all three of the mission trips, he first goes to those four cities. And that's what he does again. And by this time, the, the Galatian letter would have been written and would have been there for a long time already. And Paul now goes back to those four cities, the Galatian region and Phrygia. And it, it, from verse 23, it sounds like he actually doesn't limit himself to those four cities, that he does a lot of ministry in that area, right? And, uh, and then verse 24, we have a parenthesis, right? We shift completely. Paul is busy up in the Galatian region, and now we leave him. And in verse 24, we come down back to the city of Ephesus, where we have Aquila and Priscilla, and we are introduced to the person of Apollos. Apollos. And what do we know about Apollos? Well, we know in the first place that he is a Jew. We are told his ethnicity. He is a Jew. Now, he would have been a Hellenistic Jew, right? A, a, a Jew who was not living in the land of Palestine. He would not have been a Palestinian Jew. He would have been a Hellenistic Jew because he was living, we're told, in the city of Alexandria in Egypt. Now, immediately when we know that Apollos is from Alexandria, we know that this is an educated man. Alexandria, again, it would be a 
uh, what would I compare it to? It, it was a school city. It was a, it was a city, a very large city, again, second only to the city of Rome, a very large city, but very famous for its scholarship and for its learning. There was a, uh, in fact, I think you remember, there was a tremendous library, right? How many of you have heard of the library in Alexandria, right? That was partially destroyed when Julius Caesar uh, was uh, burning the city and he accidentally burned down uh, part of the library of Alexandria. But there was a, that would have already happened, by the way, by the time Apollos, what we're talking about here. But uh, still, the city of Alexandria was renowned for its learning and especially for its Jewish learning. There was a tremendous Jewish community in the Alexandria, in the city of Alexandria, Egypt. They had a school, and Apollos, no doubt, was educated at that school. So Alexandria, Egypt, a very famous city for its educational opportunities. So we're not surprised at all to learn that in verse 24, we're told he was an eloquent man. And actually, the word eloquent there is, is a broad word. It just means kind of a learned man who could speak well. He could speak well. He was a scholarly individual. He was highly educated. He was a learned person, an eloquent man. He could speak well. Again, not at all surprising that if he's in Alexandria, Egypt, he had uh, accrued quite a lot of education. All right. Then we are told that he was, if we go down to verse 25, fervent in spirit. Fervent in spirit. So he was a zealous man. Again, when I, when I think of Apollos, I think kind of a man similar to the Apostle Paul. This man, and actually in the, in the Greek language, it's actually quite interesting. The word there is boiling in spirit. He was, he was boiling over with zeal for the Lord. Fervent in spirit. Okay, now in the, in the following my outline there, we come then to the fifth place, to speaking accurately. We're told that this Apollos was mighty in the scriptures, which means he had a very detailed knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. He knew the Bible, again, the Bible as they had it in their day, the Old Testament, he knew it very well. And he taught in verse 25, teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. So this man, Apollos, who had been a Jew, he understood the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Uh, we read one of them, one of the most famous ones for our uh, assurance of pardon today from Isaiah 53. With those scriptures and many others, Apollos was very familiar. But Apollos was not just a Jew anymore. Apollos knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Apollos knew and he believed that the man Jesus, who had walked in Palestine and died on a cross outside of the city of Jerusalem, that that man was the Messiah. He believed all that. And that's why we're told that he taught accurately, in other words, he interpreted those Old Testament prophecies accurately as pointing to Jesus, that Jesus was the man who fulfilled those prophecies. So he spoke accurately. But for all that, speaking accurately, he still spoke deficient. He still did not have a full knowledge of Christ and his work. And so we're told at the end of verse 25 that he was acquainted only with the baptism of John. That means, my friends, that this Apollos, for all his knowledge of the scriptures, for all his fervent zeal, for all his uh, eloquence in speaking and all his scholarship, that he had not yet risen past the Apostle John. 
You might say, my friends, that the ministry of, of Apollos was just this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what, that's what the ministry of John the Baptist was, you remember. And so that's how far Apollos had came. He came to Jesus as the Messiah, and he is the Lamb of God, but that's as far as the knowledge of Apollos went. Now, it was true knowledge, and I want to make that clear, because the Bible makes that clear, that Apollos wasn't teaching something erroneous. He was teaching accurately, but it was deficient. It was not the full knowledge of all what the death and resurrection of Christ meant. And when Aquila and Priscilla heard Apollos speaking in the synagogue, that's in the seventh place there, Apollos had gone into the synagogues of the Jews and was arguing and reasoning with the Jewish people that Jesus was the Messiah that they were hoping for. Now Aquila and Priscilla, who of course were best friends with who? Best friends with the Apostle Paul, remember? They had even... They'd even lifted themselves up out of Corinth, right, and followed Paul to Ephesus, right, crossed the Aegean Sea with Paul. So they had sat at the feet of Paul. The theology of Aquila and Priscilla was the theology of Paul. And now Aquila and Priscilla, when they hear, they hear what Apollos is saying, they hear immediately, here is a man who knows the truth about Jesus. But he does not know all the truth about Jesus. And so they take him aside. And you know, I think last time we, we talked about, oh, wouldn't you have loved to have been at those conversations between Paul and Crispus, the, the, the head of the Jewish synagogue in Corinth? And now I've got to say it again. Would you not have loved to have been a fly on the wall to hear these conversations between Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos? My friends, when the eyes of Apollos, when the mind of Apollos went open, as Aquila and Priscilla explained to him, what does that mean? Behold, uh, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. When Aquila and Priscilla sat down and they said, let us tell you about Jesus, his death on the cross and all what that means, that the Lord Jesus Christ took our uh, uh, griefs and carried our sorrows. Oh, Apollos knew that text. But maybe he didn't understand the fullness of it. And now Aquila and Priscilla have this great and glorious privilege of saying that Jesus' death was a substitutionary death for the sins of those who put their trust in him. And that the guilt, Apollos, your guilt and our guilt, was imputed to him. We just covered this in the catechism, didn't we? And Apollos, his perfect righteousness was imputed to you. So that, Apollos, when you stand before the judgment seat of God, you stand before him clothed in the righteousness, the pure, spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Oh, my friends, how the mind of Apollos must have glowed with joy. How he must have said, as we just sang, Hallelujah, what a Savior. And when Aquila and Priscilla went on and said three days later, the grave was empty. And God put his stamp of approval on what Jesus had done and publicly displayed to the world that this man, Jesus, is who he said he was. He is the great Messiah. Oh, can you hear that conversation, my friends? I don't know what Apollos must have done, whether he wept or whether he rejoiced or whether he did a combination of both. But can you imagine this man who had been gently led by Priscilla and Aquila to see the fuller truth of Jesus, to understand all what is bound up in that phrase, 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I never knew that that's all what it meant, said Apollos. The half was not told me. And this man's heart must have rejoiced as Aquila and Priscilla took him on a catechism class, my friends. Dear young people, what you understand and take for granted, Apollos learned for the first time. With all his learning and with all his education, he sat down at the feet of Aquila and Priscilla, and they taught him the basic truths that third graders and fourth graders are taught here in our Sunday school, and how he must have rejoiced. My friends, Apollos is an example of a man who transitioned out of the old dispensation, out out from under the old covenant, and into the new covenant of God's grace, where everything was done for him. The work of Christ is a finished work, and it takes away all your sin. Yeah, I'd love to have been there. My friends, one other thing I want to quickly point out to you is that we'll notice that in these, in these descriptions of Priscilla and Aquila uh, taking Apollos aside, we notice a change in word order. Look at verse 26. In verse 26, And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, that is Apollos who did that, But when Priscilla and Aquila, notice the word order is now switched. It was Aquila and Priscilla. But now it's Priscilla and Aquila. It seems very likely, my friends, that it was Priscilla who took the lead in taking Apollos aside and explaining these things to him. Now, many of the feminist scholars of scriptures, of course, immediately jump on this and assume that Priscilla was an elder or apostle or or something. And Of course, that's flying to an extreme. But let's not miss the truth here. That Aquila, probably busy with his day job, right, as, as the men would have been, Priscilla had more time to take this Apollos under her wing and to show him more carefully the truth of the gospel. And certainly Aquila would have joined in that as he was able. But that change in word order seems to, that is significant also in the Greek language. It does seem that Priscilla took the leading role in taking Apollos' understanding of Jesus to a fuller level. And what a blessing that was for him. Well, my friends, in the third place then, we read of Apollos' transfer. Transfer. How did this exactly go? It says in verse 27, and when he wanted to go across to Achaia. Now, Achaia would have been that mainland of Greece. Remember I said that Greece, you kind of have that mainland, right? And then you have that very thin little land bridge where the city of Corinth is, and then the Peloponnesus. Well, Achaia would have been that... uh, um, that, that, that basically the mainland of Greece, which would have included the city of Corinth. Corinth would have been the main city of Achaia. It's possible that the elders in Corinth heard about Apollos. That word of Apollos' gifts and of his ministry had crossed the Aegean Sea. The elders in Corinth have heard about it. And perhaps they extended a call to Apollos to come and to labor in the Corinthian church. And then verse 27, we read, and when he wanted to go across to Achaia or to Corinth, and perhaps, again, uh, again, this is somewhat speculative, but it seems likely that uh, the reason Apollos wanted to go across to Achaia was because they had extended a call to him. And he felt inclined to accept that call, to leave the city of Ephesus, to leave Priscilla and Aquila, and to go across the Aegean Sea and to minister in the city of Corinth. And by the way, uh, what we know about Apollos, you can see how, uh, how effective he would have been just the right man for that kind of job, at least as, as far as we can see, right? He was a very educated man. He was very eloquent. 
The, the people in Corinth were very educated. Remember the Greek? People loved scholarship. They loved philosophy. They loved eloquence. And, and Apollos would have been a, a wonderful man for that job. And certainly his knowledge of the Jewish religion, himself being a Jew, Apollos would have been a man very gifted for ministry in Corinth. And we read that the brethren encouraged him to go. That would be the brethren, the elders in Ephesus, encouraged him. They even wrote a letter of introduction uh, to the disciples in Corinth. And so Apollos goes. He uh, crosses the Aegean Sea. He arrives in the city of Corinth. And we read there those wonderful words, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace. So God raises up this man, the man for the city of Corinth. And and what a wonder, my friends, to read later in Paul's first letter to Corinth. What does he say? I think you'll remember these words. I have planted. Apollos watered. But God gave the increase. And that's how we see it working out also in Acts. That Apollos goes away from Ephesus and takes up his ministry. What Paul had started there, Apollos now matures it, right? He guides it. And he takes over the work that Paul had started. And Paul is very grateful. You can see, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So that is Apollos' transfer. Now, my friends, we come to these three, uh, four points. Oh, that should be, the last one should be application number four, not application three again, but applications, four points. And the first one, uh, I'll, I'll just say this right now, the first one is the least edifying, all right? But it's very interesting. It's very interesting, and I wanted to share it with you. Because you know that in, in, the, in uh, the New Testament, the book of Hebrews is a, is a book that appears to us to be anonymous. There does not appear to be any author And no one knows who the author of of Hebrews was. Many people have grown up thinking that the Apostle Paul uh, wrote the letter to Hebrews. I'll show you why that's almost impossible to believe, that the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to Hebrews. Um, Interestingly enough, our our Belgic Confession of Faith lists the book of Hebrews as one of the epistles of Paul, uh, which is kind of odd to me because none of the Reformers believed that Paul wrote the letter to Hebrews. but at any rate, uh, why is it, is it not written by Paul? Well, first of all, uh, when, you, when you have uh, a Pauline letter, he almost always, in fact, all the time in the New Testament, he starts by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the saints at, right? We're so used to Paul opening with that greeting. But there's another thing, and I'd like you to see this in the book of Hebrews. In, in, in chapter 2, the author of Hebrews says this, He says in in Hebrews 2 and verse 3, he says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Now there, the author of Hebrews very clearly places himself in the second generation of those who had heard the gospel. You follow me? The apostles were the first generation of those who had heard the gospel, Paul, Peter, John, right? The the 12 apostles, or the 11 apostles, right? But the author of Hebrews places himself in the second generation of those who had heard the gospel. And so that could not possibly have been Paul who wrote that. Because you'll remember how much Paul insists, especially like in the first two chapters of the letter to the Galatians, Paul insists that he is an apostle, and that he did not learn his gospel from anyone else but from Jesus himself. 
So Paul could not have written Hebrews 2 and verse 3. So for those reasons, and, and there are other reasons, but those are the main reasons why almost all scholars nowadays, including you know, all the way back to the time of the Reformation, have said that Paul was not the author of this letter. So who was the, the author of this letter? Well, and here I want to give you these factors to consider. And again, I'll, I'll try to be very brief here. First of all, we know that the audience, that the letter of Hebrews was written to Jewish people. So whoever wrote the letter to Hebrews must have been either himself a Jew or he had a great knowledge of all the Jewish rituals and, and law and all that stuff. All the Jewish religion, the author of Hebrews was very well acquainted with it. What is the theology of the book of Hebrews or the letter to the Hebrews? Well, the theology of the letter to Hebrews is clearly that of the Apostle Paul. Right? Apostle Paul didn't write it, but clearly it was written by someone who was a disciple of the Apostle Paul, someone who knew the teaching of the Apostle Paul. What is the language and the style of the letter written to the Hebrews? And again, I, uh, this is something that we're told by the people who study these things, that the, that the language and the style of the letter of Hebrews is very eloquent. It's very uh, stylish Greek, very polished Greek, very scholarly It's the kind of smooth rhetoric that we expect from an educated person. It's not rough Greek like we find in the the second letter of Peter, which we would expect from a man like Peter, who is is not a scholar, right? But 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 the Greek language used in the letter to Hebrews is a very smooth, polished Greek. Fourth, we know that the author of Hebrews put himself in the second generation of those who learned the gospel not the first generation of the apostles. He did not see himself as an apostle. Well, my friends, this is why so many people believe that the author to the letter of Hebrews was Apollos. Now, of course, it cannot be proven, but you might say Apollos, very interestingly, checks all the boxes of everything we know about the letter to the Hebrews. It seems very likely that Apollos was the author of this letter. And it was Martin Luther, actually, who gave this suggestion for the first time. He suggested that Apollos was the author of the letter to the Hebrews. And since then, many other scholars have, have embraced that idea. Now, if Apollos was the author of the letter to the Hebrews, it seems odd that there is so little uh, even suggestion of this fact before the time of Luther. This is an argument against Apollos being the author of Hebrews. Uh, and so again, we will never know who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. But certainly Apollos, or someone like Apollos, is the author of that letter. And again, I find that an interesting fact. I hope you do as well. It's not, by the way, just a completely meaningless discussion. By studying who was the author of Hebrews, you learn a great deal about the letter itself. So it's not a completely uh, futile uh, discussion. I, I commit it to your, to your study. At any rate, let us hasten then to the second point of application, which is laborers. My friends, what a glorious gift it is of the ascended Christ when he raises up pastors and elders, evangelists and missionaries in the church of God, deacons, when he raises up uh, Aquilas and Priscilla's to labor in the church. I went on the URC website and counted 17 vacant churches in the United Reformed Churches alone. And so, my friends, when we read in the New Testament that God raised up Apollos, to be a minister for the church at Corinth. That has to stir up in our own hearts a couple of different things. 
First of all, let me speak to the young men of the church. Dear young men, do you ever think that God may be calling you to the work of the ministry? And I ask you that question very directly this morning. Because I know in our own culture, in our time, we immediately dismiss the fact, I did the same thing. Okay? I did the same thing. We, we, I don't know why that is. It's not a healthy thing. In the first place, you should consider, has God given me some desire for the work of the ministry? Has he given me some gifts for the work of the ministry? And notice I don't say, did, did, did God make you an Apollos? Right? That can come over time. But did he give you some desire for the ministry and some gifts for it? Now, I know immediately when people hear that, they say, oh, that's definitely not me. My friends, don't be so quick to dismiss it. Don't be so quick to dismiss it. Make it, may I ask you that this morning? That you lay this before the Lord in your prayer. Young men in our midst this morning. That you lay that before the Lord in prayer. Say, Lord, is it possible that you are calling me to the ministry? Lord, make it clear to me. Open the way. Make that path plain before me. Because, my friends, that is one of the greatest gifts that God gives to his church, church is men who will lead the church in preaching and teaching and prayer. And I, I'm, I'm focusing this especially now on pastors, but you know that trickles down right to elders. The church needs deacons. The church needs Priscilla's in the church as well. The church needs Priscilla's. I want to speak also then to, to parents this morning because I think parents are part of the problem here as well. We often push our children into, into fields right, that are far from the ministry. And I think that there is something of, a, of, a, of, this, of this thought in, in parents, well, I, I don't want my child to be a minister. Now, in one sense, I totally understand that. I get it. Ministry is a very hard task. All right? Uh, many ministers burn out. They have, they, have, uh, uh, very, they have difficulty carrying on the work. But for all that, my friends, uh, you may be working contrary to the purposes of God by trying to direct your children into a higher paying, right, a more prestigious or more influential kind of work. And so, parents, I ask you to lay before the Lord in prayer. Lord, are you calling my sons? And again, in a, in a lesser sense, our, my daughters, to the work of the ministry. And that you too would, would be able to guide your children and to speak to them, to say to your children, son, is it possible that God's calling you to the ministry? And don't just dismiss that fact. Well, I'd never want my son to be a pastor. I've seen what happened to pastor so-and-so. That's never going to happen to my son. All right? Maybe the mothers are especially thinking that way. Right now you always want to protect your child and put your arms around them and shield them. Well, my friends, think carefully of the call of God and don't dismiss that. And let us all agree then to pray that the Lord would raise up men to labor in the work of the ministry. My friends, application number three, on the lookout. This is one of the tasks of elders and the task, again, in a a lesser sense, but it's still in a very real sense, of every Christian in the Christian church is to be on the lookout for men who can serve God in the ministry. I ask you, dear congregation, this morning, how many of you think about that, of your responsibility to be on the lookout for Apollos in this body? Now, what does the scripture say about that? Well, Paul says that God gave gifts to his church, and then in Ephesians 4 and verse 12, he writes, for the equipping of the saints for the work 
of service or the work of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. Paul explicitly says, my friends, that the, that the work of the elders, the work of the pastor, but the work of all of us together is to be on the prowl for men who have the Spirit of God upon them and who can serve God in the work of the ministry. That is our collective task together. And brothers of the, uh, in the elders, uh, brother elders in our uh, congregation this morning, especially incumbent on you, that it is the work of the ministry to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, to be on the lookout for Apollos. And may I ask you this, uh, this morning, congregation, where are the Aquilas and Priscillas in this body? Where are the men and the women who take the young men and the young women, again, but especially focusing this, this morning on Apollos, who take the young men and who speak to them and encourage them, and maybe even as you have opportunity to, to help them to more fully understand, perhaps they have an accurate understanding, but to bring them to a fuller understanding of the person and work of Jesus. My friends, may I, may I press this even further yet? May I take this even closer to home? Where are the Priscilla's? Women of the congregation this morning, where are the Priscilla's? Well, Pastor, we don't believe in women in ministry. Now, my friends, that we certainly believe in women in ministry. We don't believe in women elders and pastors. But my friends, Priscilla had the Holy Spirit and was used by God to lead Apollos to a fuller understanding of the work of Christ. And so I, I press that on you again this morning. Where are the Priscilla's in our midst? Where are those women who have the theological ability and the uh, social ability to take someone under their wing and to speak to them and to, to show them, to, 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 lift, to give them a lift, an encouraging nudge, as it were, in the direction that God may be leading them. That is something for us to think about. I remember uh, reading about Jonathan Edwards. Do you remember Jonathan Edwards, the great American Puritan theologian? And uh, his father was Timothy Edwards, he was a pastor as well. And one day, a man came to his father with a, a, a number of questions that he wanted to ask Timothy Edwards, hoping that Timothy Edwards could help him work through them. They were objections or uh, questions that he had about the Christian faith. Well, when the man got to the house, Timothy Edwards was not home. Well, uh, Jonathan's mother let the man in and started talking to him. Now, the man hadn't come to speak with Jonathan Edwards' mother, right, the wife of Timothy Edwards, but lo and behold... As the time went on, as the conversation progressed, the man had his questions answered. And by the time Timothy Edwards got home, he had already left because the the wife of Timothy Edwards had answered all his questions and resolved his difficulties. What What a pleasure and what a smile that puts on our face, doesn't it? And how we would love it, my friends, if God would raise up Priscilla's in our midst like that, who could speak the word of truth to people who need to hear it. My last application, my friends, is Jesus. I, I, I have to end this sermon by noting how Apollos was focused on Jesus. He preached and teached about Jesus. Even when, he was, even when his knowledge was deficient, he still preached Jesus. And when Priscilla and Aquila gave him a fuller acquaintance with the gospel, his ministry was Jesus. My friends, we want in this pulpit a Christ-centered ministry. A Christ-centered ministry. I hope to say more about that this evening. Uh, it's one of the points also in tonight's sermon, so I won't say more about that now. But you know, my friends, that in our churches, we, we hold strongly 
that the Lord Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ, is the center of all gospel ministry. And all the other things that flow out of that, all the good work that we do by way of relief and and ministry in the community and, and social justice and social kind of work and all that stuff, right? Yes, the gospel has an effect on that. But our center, our focus is Christ Jesus and him crucified. And let that ever be the focus, my friends, in this pulpit and in every Christian pulpit. It was for Apollos, may it be also for us. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Almighty God and merciful Father, we rejoice that you raised up Apollos in a time when he was needed. And that in the church at Corinth, many years later, they looked back with great delight on how you had raised up Apollos to minister in the congregation and what fruit you gave upon his labor there. Lord, we long for fruit also in this church. We long for fruit in all churches. And we pray earnestly, O God, that there would be young men in this congregation and young men in other congregations who would rise up, would hear the call, would hear your call, and would say, Here am I, O Lord, send me. And that they would go forth full of the Spirit of God, mighty in the Scriptures, fervent in spirit, ready to serve you as an under-shepherd in your kingdom. Lord, will you do that powerful work in our day. And may we rejoice to see the seminaries of this land full of men, earnestly desiring to serve you in the work of the ministry. Lord, we pray for the women of the congregation, that there would be Priscilla's also in our church, who would take young men and young women alike and speak to them, encouraging them, nudging them if necessary, and, and giving them a full understanding of the person and work of Christ. Lord, we pray then that you will stir up by your spirit uh, this zeal in our hearts to serve you in this regard. Bless and keep us, Lord, and we pray also, Lord, earnestly that this pulpit would ever have Christ Jesus and him crucified at the center, and that long after we are dead and gone, Lord, there might other men stand here in this pulpit and proclaim Christ Jesus and him crucified. Lord, will you bless us then and keep us as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn now on the red hymnal to number 
go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.